Welcome to the New Life Philly Podcast. Every week, we share fresh insights as we explore the inexhaustible depths of the Word of God. We pray that you will be encouraged and challenged today as we continue in our study. Let's join in now. so glad to be with you guys this morning. Uh, it's always, always, always uh, both a privilege and a responsibility to be able to crack open God's word. Um, and you know, as they say, I was glad as they said unto me, come back to Philadelphia to preach the word of God. <laughs> um, love Philadelphia, got a deep love for Pastor Larry, uh, the Smiths. They uh, mentored me, poured into me and my wife's life. Uh, Y'all know them early years of marriage ain't no joke. And uh, if you don't got the right people around you, uh, it could be even more difficult. Uh, but by the grace of God, he, uh, he sent Pastor Larry and his beautiful wife, Miss Harriet, uh, to, to encourage us and also to correct us and challenge us. Uh, we are now about to celebrate 12 years of marriage, uh, August 15th. So uh, just in, incredible uh, what God has done uh, in our lives. Um, you know, I've been praying a lot about this Sunday in, uh, in particular, and a reason why is just because uh, uh, we've just been talking on the phone over and over again, and uh, if you want to know more about what we're doing in Orlando, Florida, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Guys, I believe, is up to some uh, amazing things there, um, but I got a deep love for this church, um, and one of the reasons I got a, just a deep love for this church uh, is because I believe that it was no accident that Pastor Larry Smith has come uh, and been called to this specific place. And so uh, if you wouldn't mind, can we just honor our brother and our pastor and our friend uh, who God has just set uh, over this house of God to pastor this church? Uh, and, and for that reason, this, this place has like a deep um, a place in my heart. Uh, so I was praying, you know, last night, uh, deep last night, and um, man, I just came in with this incredible sense of expectation of what God is going to do this morning. Uh, I get an opportunity to preach um, more than I ever deserve to do so um, in different places. And there's just these moments where uh, God just lays on me expectation for what the Lord is going to do. And so I just pray that you would have just a heart of expectation as we uh, crack open God's word. Um, let's celebrate the Lord. Uh, let's be challenged by the Lord. Um, but ultimately, my prayer has been there's a passage in Ezekiel uh, where uh, it's a prophecy about the Messiah. And the prince walks into this this vision of the temple. And when the prince is inside of the temple, the people of God are not allowed to go in the same door that they actually came in. on. And what it signifies is that everybody who goes in and encounters the Messiah in his temple will not go out the same way they came in. And I'm believing God uh, that not only this morning, but I believe uh, believe in God that this will be a catalytic morning uh, that when people step into this place and encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that they would not leave in, leave out the same way that they came in, that there would be an expectation of transformation uh, amongst the body of Christ. And I just want to know, is there anybody else who wants to believe God for some crazy stuff like that, that people would be saved and sanctified, transformed? And so I'm just excited, excited, excited this morning to crack open uh, God's word with you. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42 through 47, a familiar passage if you've been uh, in the church, any amount of time, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. We have it on the screens here, and I would love, love, love if you would stand on your feet uh, as we read the word of God uh, collectively. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Uh, with your, your outside voice, <laughs> as my mama used to say, uh, why don't you read the, the word of God on the count of three? One, two, three. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I just want to entitle this message, A Portrait of the Devoted Church. A Portrait of the Devoted Church. While you're still on your feet, why don't you join me in a word of prayer? King of kings, sovereign God, great I am. Comforter and counselor, healer and provider. The one we don't just want, the one we need. God, I'm a desperate man this morning. I'm a weak man this morning. I don't have any fancy words to give to the people of God. And even if I did, it would have no effect apart from your spirit. God, if you do not show up this morning, this is a train wreck waiting to happen. For I'm broken, a man of unclean lips. God, there's so many things in my heart that that I understand and know about, and there's so many things that I don't even comprehend that you do. And in the world, my brokenness would be bad news preaching a perfect word. But I praise you that in the kingdom it's not bad news. For when I am weak, you are made strong. So my God, our God, we pray that you'll be strong this morning. We pray that you would transform lives. Shake some folk up this morning. Grab some of us by the collar. Give us a good yank. Some of us need to be awakened out of our slumber. We've been asleep, Lord. There were the people around us dying, not just physical death, but dead in their sins. The need to come to the awakening, quickening knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're asleep, Lord. Wake us up, God. As a church, I look on Twitter and Facebook and social media, and I just see a church that's asleep. And arguing in our slumber. God, wake us up. God, I pray, not my words, but by your spirit, that you would transform the people of God that are here, present, and also are watching at home. God, you're the only one who's able to do it. And we, as your collective people of God, are ready to to see and experience that change. So God, as we are expecting, do a mighty work this morning continue to receive our worship and Lord I pray that not a single person under the sound of my voice would go out the same way that they came in we pray these things in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all God's people say amen amen you can take your seats you can take your seats a picture worth framing is a picture worth taking. A picture worth framing is a picture worth taking. I'm sure you would agree with that, but then the question becomes, what kind of of a picture is worth framing? And over the course of my life, since the time that I actually got married, I always got confused which pictures were worth framing. And my wife kept drilling into me that there's only a certain kind of picture that's really worth framing. I would go different places and I would see a lizard that caught my attention or a spider that caught my attention or a tree that caught my attention. And I would take this picture as though I would return to that picture and be just as much in awe as I was when I saw it. 
But y'all know what it is. <laughs> Both to my frustration, matter of fact, my wife's frustration, <laughs> and also to the detriment of our digital photo album, <laughs> we got a whole bunch of pictures that none of us want to look at. <laughs> Why? Because the only pictures that you really want to look at The only pictures worth framing are the pictures of your loved ones that you want to look back on and remember that time. See, when our loved ones aren't captured in the photo, most of the time, that's a photo that is not worth framing. And what we're going to see in this passage is Luke, the literary literary photographer, taking a photograph that Jesus Christ thought was worth framing. And what we're going to see is this is a portrait of Jesus' bride. The people of God collectively coming together early on in the church. And what we're going to see is not only the photograph itself from verses 43 through 47, but we're going to see the picture frame as well. Now, if you look at any picture frame, it always has four sides. It has two vertical sides and it has two horizontal sides. The vertical sides of this picture frame are the preaching and the prayer. Literally, God's word to his people and God's people word to their God. And then the horizontal sides of this frame are feasting and fellowship. What we do to commune with one another and what we do while we're communing with one another. So you have the four sides of this particular photograph And what we're going to see is that these four things are the things that the people of God were devoted to in the early church. And from verse 43 to 47, we're going to see what that devotion actually produced. And my prayer at the end of this is that we will get a picture, a vision for what the church of God should be like. And we'll be so caught up into that vision that we ourselves would desire it with every single fabric of our hearts. So we begin with the picture frame in verse 42. And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. That's that preaching to fellowship, to breaking of bread. That's that feasting and to prayer. Before we get to those four things, we need to first deal with the word devotion. Somebody say devotion. Devotion. Say it like you mean it. Say devotion. Devotion. One more time for the spirit of God. Say devotion. Devotion. All right. So devotion. Devotion is a very interesting word in Greek. It's the word proskatero. And what this word means is literally a combination of two words, kratero, which means to grab hold of something, and pros, which means to bring it close. So when we talk about being devoted to something, it means to hold it close to the chest. This is why Jesus would say that you cannot be both devoted to God and to money. You can't have both of those things close to your chest. See, what Jesus is teaching is that when it comes to devotion in the Christian life, there is no room for the ambidextrous Christian. We got to hold on with both hands to the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved us because that will be the very gospel that keeps us. I was walking down Philadelphia, down Center City, and I saw this dude juggling. And it hit me in that moment that what he was juggling were objects that he didn't really value. Some bowling pins, some rings, some bean bags, tennis balls. What he wasn't juggling was his children. You know why? Because when you are actually devoted to something, you hold on to it with both hands. There's no room for juggling Jesus in your addictions. We have to struggle against those things because our heart has compelled us by the Spirit of God to hold on with both hands to Jesus. There's no room for juggling Jesus and your success goals. Because we have to hold on with both hands to Jesus and he might call us to his goal, which might not make us successful in the world's eyes. There's no room for the ambidextrous Christian. It's the picture of my son holding on with both hands to his bottle. (laughs) It's a picture of somebody who's been starving, holding on with both hands to their new plate of food. One picture that it reminds me of is when we took our 
first vacation that we've had as a family ever. We did, went down to Orlando, Florida, <laughs> but we didn't go to Disney World. We didn't have money for that. We went to the, <laughs> the second-rate John Legoland. <laughs> <laughs> so at Legoland, it was the most excited trip that we had had up until that point. We were in Legoland, and the reason why I was excited and also terrified was because it was the first ride, the first, here's my, my kids' words, real roller coaster that they had actually hit that height barrier. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And y'all can see your, your boy is physically challenged. So he's going to give birth to physically challenged kids. Short and tiny. So I'm excited for them. Like, yes, your first real roller coaster, but I'm terrified as their father, your first real roller coaster. And I had some illegitimate and probably illogical fears. So don't judge me. It was just Father Day just a few months ago. So don't judge me on this. I told my daughter, who was about eight at the time, I said, baby girl, this is what I need you to do. I'm so excited for you to get on this roller coaster. But what I need you to do is I need you to, they're going to have this little arm bar that comes down. And I want you to hold on to that arm bar for dear life. I don't know if I messed her whole roller coaster experience up or not. But my daughter was obedient. How do I know? Because on every roller coaster, when they have that first drop, it takes a snapshot of everybody in that roller coaster. And what you saw in that picture was my daughter being obedient. For as everyone else's hands are raised in the air, my daughter is holding on for dear life. I wonder what would happen if there was a picture taken of the church as the church seems like it's on a drop as well in America. Would that photograph be a church that is holding on or one that is let go? What would the church be like if we held on to faith and fellowship like my daughter held on to that arm bar? What would the church be like if it clung to Christ and community like my daughter clung to that coaster? What we're going to see in this particular passage is that we don't have to wonder what it will look like. We get a picture of what it actually is. And what are they holding on to? Four things. First, preaching. And the text says it's apostolic preaching. So you might be wondering, what is apostolic preaching? Well, the beautiful thing is we get a picture of that in the book of Acts. There are a number of sermons found in the book of Acts. You have sermons from Peter early on. You have sermons from your boy Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Then you have sermons from Paul later on in the book. And out of all of these sermons to a myriad of audiences, here are three things that connect all of the sermons together. You ready for them? Every single sermon, here it is, three things, was rooted in Scripture, fueled by the Spirit, and pointed to the Savior. Every sermon in the book of Acts was rooted in Scripture, fueled by the Spirit, and pointed to the Savior. Biblical preaching is rooted in Scripture, fueled by the Spirit, and points to the Savior. Every sermon that we preach should be rooted in Scripture, fueled by the Spirit, and pointing to the Savior. The pastor's job is to be rooted in Scripture, fueled by the Spirit, and pointing to the You should run in the opposite direction if they are not rooted in Scripture, fueled by the Spirit, and pointing to the Savior. We have one role to be rooted in Scripture, fueled by the Spirit. And pointing to the Savior. That's apostolic preaching. And can you imagine a church that is committed to that? Not some Facebook philosophies. Not some Fox News ideas. Not clicking on YouTube, finding your favorite guy who's just talking literally about nothingness. Lying about its truth and value in your life. What if the church was devoted both hands on that kind of preaching and teaching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Oh, I think we'd be in a far different place. 
Apostolic preaching. Next thing, fellowship. Somebody say fellowship. fellowship. Great word in Greek. You've probably heard it, koinonia. But what's interesting is in our English language, we don't really have a word that quite compares to the word koinonia. The reason why is because the word koinonia has two different elements to it. It has this element of both intimacy and investment. And we don't normally put those two things together. This is why Paul in the book of Philippians, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter one, he says, I thank my God always in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer for mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your, here it is, your koinonia, your fellowship, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He gets down to the end of the book and he says, yet it was kind of you to koinonia, to share in my troubles. For you, Philippians, yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, no church entered into partnership, fellowship, koinonia with me except for you only. So theologians look at the book of Philippians and they ask the question, what is the dominant theme in the book of Philippians? Is Paul primarily talking about the Philippian church's investment in him, or is he talking about his intimacy with the Philippian church? And the answer is found in the word koinonia, yes. For the early church knew nothing of intimacy without investment. This is why we're going to see that they held everything in common. Because they don't know anything about being committed to a church and not giving financially. It just came with the territory. When you're in relationship with somebody, you give to them. What's yours is theirs and what theirs is yours. We know this in family. Problem is, we think that our physical blood runs deeper than Jesus' blood. But the reality is, is that if a church was committed to this kind of fellowship... Ain't nobody would be in need. You can't have it. Because every need is my problem, not theirs. Amen. Fellowship. Next thing, feasting. This is the one we skip over. The text says that the committed self devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And the question is, is this talking about the Lord's Supper? And I believe it is, and then some. Because you see in the Gospel of Luke, in literally the 24th chapter, I don't know if y'all remember when he, Jesus rose from the dead. He's on the road to Emmaus. He's walking with the two disciples. They don't recognize who he is. He's explaining to them every single place that he finds himself in scripture. And then they get to a place where they're going to take a break. He breaks bread and the text says that they recognize who he was in the breaking of bread. Pointing back a couple of chapters before to the Lord's Supper, the last time that he was in the upper room. So, of course, this is pointing to the Lord's Supper, but I think it's also pointing beyond that. It's talking about what should happen with the people of God to get together. We eat, y'all. The reason why people get happy when they eat is because it feels good. I mean, I don't see anybody angry when they eat and just chewing with anger. If you do, you got some problems. Unless you eat at McDonald's. No, I'm just messing around. <laughs> now, we get happy when we eat. And what we're called to do as the people of God is to bring that happiness into the collective unit. God gave us food to enjoy. Here it is in community. Amen. Feasting. Amen. And then the last thing, prayer. Somebody say prayer. prayer. This is the one we don't like that much. Because we all weak in it. Anybody just a strong prayer? You just feel like you're the best prayer up in this joint? Okay. Thank you. Because if you had to raise your hand, I'd probably say you're praying in pride, so it ain't really prayer. <laughs> okay. Prayer. Prayer is so interesting because prayer, here it is, if you don't know what prayer, prayer it is, because we have these questions. So if God is sovereign, doesn't he already know what I need? Therefore, why ask? Here is what prayer is. Prayer is the declaration of your desperation. And why does God wait until we pray? It's so that when God does the impossible, we don't think that the impossible was done by us. See, when you have to beg God for something, when it happens, you know, I ain't do that. 
But think about all the blessings that you ain't asked for. Think about all the times, the job promotions that you've gotten, the, the schools that your kids have gotten into, the times that you were saved and you thought you were going to die. Even the times that we couldn't get a prayer out, but our hearts were desperate, we know it was God. But the times we should be compelled by the impossibility of the feat that has happened, but we haven't prayed intentionally. We walk away like we did that John by ourselves. Prayer is a declaration of desperation. And this is why in the book of Acts, everything happens after prayer. So here it is. You might be wondering, what would the church look like if they committed themselves, devoted themselves, clung with both hands to preaching, to fellowship, to feasting, and to prayer? All I got to say is, and I'm sure you can agree, it wouldn't look like it looks today. But if you want a better picture of what it would look like, Join me in verses 43 through 47 as we look at the actual photograph. Verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Stop there. We see awe and amazement in this photograph. I love this so much because the apostles, this is a scary thing, accompanied their words with their works. Can I say it this way? All eyes here for a second. I appreciate y'all's attentiveness and taking notes, but can I just, just say this real quick? The apostles did not just preach the gospel. Come on. Come on. What was blowing them away was that their words were accompanied by powerful works. Are we going to act like the apostles didn't know the gospel? Are we going to act like the apostles didn't believe the gospel? No, the apostles loved the gospel, and it is because of the gospel that they went out, took the power that has been endowed to them by the Spirit of God, and they said, everywhere where the kingdom of God is not reigning, I want to bring the power and influence of Jesus Christ into that. So they saw sickness. They said, that's not kingdom. So they would lay hands on the sick. When they would see disagreement, they would literally pray that that would be broken. Every place that they saw that there was something out of step with the kingdom, they would step into that space and they would do something about it. They recognized the kingdom of God. It was both word and works. And what happened? What happened? What happened? Here it is. Awe and amazement. Can I say it in one word? There was wonder in the early church. Man, I wonder what has happened to the wonder in our churches. Is anybody with me? Like, when's the last time you came to church expecting that transformation was going to happen? We've been asleep, y'all. We've been asleep. I see people putting all of their energy and time into converting other Christians to their tribe instead of putting that energy and time into praying for non-believers to be converted to their Christ. Sleep, y'all. I think it's because we've lost the sense of the awe of God. I wonder... If the reason why we don't see truly wonderful things is because truly wonderful things are impossible to control. When God does a work, just let me know. Let me let you know. It's always chaotic. (laughs) You can't control that. (laughs) Spirit of God saving people all over the place. And you'll see in Acts chapter 6, they got to figure it out. Because when God's doing stuff, there is a bringing this chaos into order. Why? Because of the explosion of power. And I want to see a mess again. We have never heard of a revival that wasn't messy. Too many people coming into church. Don't got space for them. Man, we didn't build this big enough. Anybody want that? We got to recognize that if we want that, 
It begins with prayer. We can't strategize for that kind of work. We can't whiteboard for that kind of work. If you, if I see another pastor, pros and cons, their way into the next strategy for the church, I'm going to lose my mind. Tell me one work of God that the pros outweighed the cons. <laughs> Moses, go to Pharaoh. You know the guy who's looking to kill you, that one? Yep. Tell him, let my people go. You know the slaves that he's had for 400 years? Those. <laughs> Once you get there, I'm going to do some stuff you've never seen before. You know, stuff that literally you have never seen before. <laughs> well, no, his pros and cons list. I'll die, 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 die. <laughs> Here's the weight. Here's the weight, though. Here's the weight of the pros list. God said it. That's it. That's it. Man, I want to see that again. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? We talk about the dis disagreements about, should we speak in tongues? Should we not speak in tongues? Should we prophesy? Should we not prophesy? But Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians, in that same context, that the whole purpose of prophecy is so that when the unbeliever comes in, they can recognize what? God is there. One of my days I hate more than anything in school was always the first day of school. And it wasn't because my gear wasn't fly. Because I, I did my thing, y'all. And it wasn't because I was scared of meeting new people, though. I didn't like that either. The reason why is because my name is Recap. <laughs> and y'all know what it is. Whenever roll call comes around, they can never get it right. And if y'all teachers, you know what it is when you see that name. You know, you go from David Johnson to Damar Brown, and then you see it. And you, you can always tell by the pause they're going to get it wrong. <laughs> Uh, we have, uh, help me out with this one. Uh, and then for most teachers, they don't even try to look at it. Once they realize they can't say it, they just pick a name that's more familiar to them. Rachel. <laughs> like, nope, that's, that's, that's recap, ma'am. <laughs> What's interesting, all, every, every single year, every single year, first day of school, when they would take roll, there would always be a kid that was absent the first day of school, and you would know it because they would call their name repeatedly. Y'all remember that? Y'all remember that? Here's what I wonder. Is if God took role in some of our churches, would he have to call the Spirit of God repeatedly? As though he's not there. Oh my. Oh my. Jesus. Jesus. Has anyone seen Jesus? <laughs> May it never be said in new life that God would take roll call and have to repeat Jesus' name two, three times. And it shouldn't just be his name on our websites. But his tangible presence should be made manifest amongst the people of God. Anybody want that? Awe and amazement. Next thing we see in this photograph in verse 44 through 45, all believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. One word here. They were common. See, this word doesn't mean a lot to us because we don't really get what it means. What it means is that no one in the church was exalted either because of their material possessions or their societal positions. They came into the church and none of that mattered. Literally none of it mattered. And this is like Luke. Luke writes over and over again this idea of the humble will be exalted and the exalt exalted will be humbled. And we see it in Mary's Magnificat in chapter 1 of Luke. Y'all remember that? Mary talks about those who are on the throne are brought low, but those of a humble state are brought high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Mountains brought low, valleys brought high. What's happening? There is an evening out of things when we come into the church. That's what happens. Why is there an evening out of things when you come into the church? Makes sense, right? We're all sinners. (laughs) So what it does, as soon as you step into the kingdom of God, you have to recognize that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, putting us on the bottom. But God doesn't leave us there because also to enter into the kingdom of God, you have to confess that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. So now his blood raises us to new heights. But it is not our money. It is not our status. It is not our financial position. It's none of those things. The only thing that brings us into this heightened status is the blood of Christ. So when you know. That this person, no matter how poor they are, had to enter in with the same blood that you had to enter in. It evens us out. And that's why you can have commonness amongst the people of God. Next thing we see in the text, verse 46. And I love this part. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now I want to just take some time again. Just for a second, we talked about this word proskatero in the beginning. And this is actually the second time this shows up. Second time this word for devotion shows up. And one way this can be translated, y'all ready for this? This can actually be translated, they devoted themselves to harmony in the temple. This is the language that Paul uses, y'all, in Ephesians 4. When he says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Here it is, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What he's saying is that these people were eager for unity. They were devoted to harmony. And I asked the question, does that characterize us? Man, sometimes I feel like we're more devoted to our doctrines to the pe- than the people of God. And here's where I get confused. Which doctrines are we most devoted to? <laughs> because if I believe that Christ died for my sins, you believe Christ died for your sins. I believe he rose from the dead. You believe he rose from the dead. I believe he's the son of God. You believe he's the son of God. I believe that there's faith in their salvation in no other name. You believe there's salvation in no other name. So we got these core tenets on the same page, and I'm asking the question, so why does the world know us more by our bickering than our unity around the person of salvation? Man, I can't get it. Cannot comprehend it. This makes absolutely no sense unless... We're not devoted to unity like the early church was. I'm just asking. I'm just asking. Would you check your own heart this morning? What things bother you? That's where you know where your heart is. Does division bother you? More than this person saying one little thing that you disagree with biblically? Is it even a biblical disagreement or is it a political one? (laughs) We got to all ask ourselves a question because we're all a part of this problem. They were devoted to harmony. And where? In the temple. This is what I get excited about, y'all. So the early church, they did this crazy thing. They came together. They gathered together in homes. I love this the call for life group this morning because this is what's happening. They gathered together in homes, but then they went to a public place and they showed off the unity of the spirit of God so here it is we have our own public places you know we got social media we got our streets we got Twitter and Facebook and all of these places question is what are we showing off if we want to mimic what we see here in this beautiful photograph we must show off unity and you can only show off a unity that you're dedicated to now he moves on 
And it says they broke bread in their homes and they ate together, oh my goodness, with glad and sincere hearts. Somebody say glad and sincere. sincere. Say it one more time. Say glad and sincere. sincere. One more time. Say glad and sincere. sincere. Okay. Here's where your boy just can't contain himself. What I see in this text is a people of God who are both happy and holy. Y'all know people like that, do y'all? Both happy and holy. Like they take a communion and it's not, oh, woe is me, I'm the worst person in the world. And dead serious. We could go back to history to check it out. If y'all don't take away nothing else, next time y'all take communion, y'all celebrate the mess out of Jesus after that. Please. Early church history, a dude named Justin Martyr. He was an apologist. He had to defend the faith. Watch me now. Watch me now. He had to defend the faith, not against stuff like evolution. He didn't have to defend the faith against stuff like Hebrew Israelites. No, no, no. He had to defend the faith against people who believed that because they were partying so loud, there had to be something sinful going on. Literally, he writes a whole apologetic on, no, what we call love feasts is not actually us doing anything sinful. I know I got kids in the building. It's not us doing anything sinful. It's actually just us celebrating the fact that the Messiah rose from the dead. Check it. And they were celebrated so loudly, the world looked in, said, y'all parties is way too crazy. Something bad must be happening. Anybody want to be a part of a church where you got to defend why y'all so happy? You got to defend your celebration? Man, it feels like in our culture, you either happy or holy, not happy and holy. Holiest people, most miserable people you ever meet. Just dedicated. Here it is. Not to love, but to law. Just miserable because of it. But then you got happy people who on the outside, they having an exciting time, having a great time, but it's nothing but a mascot suit. Smile on the outside, inside they groggy because they ain't connected to God's holiness. But what if there was a people who were both happy and holy, glad and sincere? Man, it would be something amazing. And the world would look in on that and say, how do I get to be a part of that? Because that looks amazing. Think I'm lying? What happens after after this? They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord, here it is, added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here's what we see. We see this picture frame in verse 42, vertical sides of preaching and prayer, horizontal sides of feasting and fellowship. Then you see this photograph of what that looks like in verses 43 through 46, where there's awe and wonder, there's commonality amongst the people of God, and there's happiness and holiness. This is the beautiful picture of what the church looks like. And what happens as a result? The world, almost like they're going to an art museum, is looking at this photograph. They stop. They stare. They're mesmerized because they say, what I'm seeing is the most beautiful thing I can ever comprehend. And as they stare at the photograph, by faith, they are grafted into the photo. And literally, the Lord adds daily. To their number, those who are being saved. Do you know what I hear? Right in this passage, one word. You ready? 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 Growth. Everybody in the church want to know how do we grow the church? Literally, seminary classes dedicated to church growth strategies. Pastors get together and they say, what are you doing to make the church grow? And the solution has been in the scriptures the whole time. 
You want to know how to grow the church? The best church growth strategy Jesus has already laid out. They will know you love me by the way you love one another. What is the best church growth strategy? Here it is. Like each other. <laughs> Sheesh. Come on. Like church growth and church unity are inseparably tied. And there's so many people who want the growth without the unity. And I'm telling you, if that's you, you want the growth without the unity. What you really want is an idolatrous form of the church that Jesus isn't blessing. He's laid out what he desires. Unity. So now we feel the weight of that, right? Ask yourself the question, are you clinging to these things? Are you clinging to the preaching? Are you clinging to fellowship? Are you clinging to feasting? Are you clinging to prayer? Are you clinging to these things? But now, get out of your individual minds. Are we as a people of God, let's get specific, here at New Life, are we clinging to these things? God asked a hard question, where are we faltering? And if you don't, if you understand where you're faltering, you'll understand which aspects of the photograph we are not displaying. And this is why the world has nothing to look in on and be drawn to. So now you feel the weight of that? You feel the weight of that? And you might be like, okay, to be honest, Pastor Recap, I'm not really clinging to any of those things. And as I look at it on the Big C Church, and even here in New Life, I see some major points of weakness. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Here's where I need your full undivided attention. Where we go from here is recognizing what this story was all about in the first place. See, in that picture I talked to you about with my daughter, where she was holding on for dear life. I left out something very critical in that photo. And what I left out was that I didn't let her go on that roller coaster by herself. <laughs> Ain't no way I'm letting my baby girl get on the real roller coaster by herself for the first time. So I got in that cart right next to her. And as I commanded her to hold on to the arm bar, I was keeping her by holding on to her arm. What I required out of her, I reinforced. We've been talking this whole time about the portrait of the devoted church, but make no mistake about it. This is really the portrait of the devoted Christ. This passage is not about how we must hold on by the strength of our hands, but it is all about how Jesus Christ came and held on to us by the stretching of his hands. And if the stretching of his hands on the cross proved to us that he grabbed hold of us, it was his resurrection and ascension that proved that he ain't never gonna let go. Yeah, we must be devoted to Christ and community, but ultimately it is Christ who is devoted to us. And that's where the hope is. That's where the hope is. So as we look at the church, as we take a good look in the mirror and we say, we don't look like this. It's okay. We one day will. Because we got another photograph in Revelation 7, 9 of the picture of what the church will be like. And it's almost like those Polaroid cameras. Y'all remember them, Jaws? Y'all remember the Polaroid? You take that picture, it printed out, and it takes some time to develop that picture, don't it? Matter of fact, if y'all really remember Polaroid cameras, I know I'm so over some people's head, you had to shake them Jaws up for the picture to develop. Can I just let y'all know that that's exactly what Jesus has done in the gospel? He's already taken the picture in Revelation 7, 9, and because he is eternal, it's not a hope he's looking forward to. It's a reality in the present time for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He took the picture already. 
But what we see in the meantime, in between time, is that it is going to take some time for that photograph to develop. Matter of fact, God might even have to shake us up a little bit, and I see that happening right now today in 2021. But don't you fret. Don't you worry. One day, the church will be unified. We will cling to the right things. We will be glorified in Christ's presence. We will be with him forever, and we will be a people of God with every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered together around the centerpiece, Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. It's just going to take some time to develop. So now the only question for you is will you be a part of that developing picture? Or will you sit on the sidelines staring at the picture but never by faith being grafted into that photo? I'm praying that today, whether you're a believer or over, you will see what it looks like to be grafted into that photo with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we will see more and more people Added to the glorious church, to the praise and honor of the only name that can save, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. 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 Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the people of God who are attentive this morning with hearts ready to receive. God, I do pray. Even under the sound of my voice. God, I don't even know what to do about it. I just pray that you would move. But I can feel in this room, Lord, don't know what to do about it. You move. But I can feel in this room, Lord, that there are people under the sound of my voice who have felt this this morning. Even in this room. And they want to dedicate themselves to being a part of that photograph. Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith right now to do just that. And God, that we would see awe and wonder come upon this place. That every time the people of God would gather in this place, they would gather with expectation because you keep outdoing the last week. And now, God, I pray that you would add to your number daily those who are being saved. Lord, can't do it without you. So we pray these things to you and through you. All to the glory of the matchless name of our King and Savior. Jesus Christ. And all God's people say, amen, 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 amen. We hope that you've been blessed today by the preaching of God's word. Join us every week for fresh insights on the New Life Philly podcast. If you would like to reach out to our church for more information, or if there's some way we can pray for you, please visit newlifephilly.net or email newlife at newlifephilly.net. May the Lord richly bless you this week.